part two of this one called Revenge. And it is the one that has caused me the most trouble in my life. I'd probably say I don't think I've ever had to preach on such a difficult text as this. And uh, it has been a, a, a good struggle because I think it's again just reminded me that apart from the spirits, we really don't understand anything in this word. And uh, I want to read it to us this morning from Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, this is Jesus speaking, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, which is like your undergarment, like your vest, let him take your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. <clears throat> this morning, I want to carry on in part two of this section. For those of you who weren't here last week, Wayne, do you mind just popping on those lights there? You guys seem so dark and distant. <laughs> All right, I want to see your faces. It's helpful. All right, so I want to quickly recap as, in as little time as possible and try and pull this together today. Um, last week, we did an introduction. I just want to lay the foundation of what Jesus is saying in these four scenarios, and I'm hoping for grace this morning to make it alive and real and um, illuminated. And I just want to point out that we are reaching the highest point in the Sermon on the Mount. It, it is the most difficult of all. This giant we are facing, it is the second hardest one you and I will face in our lives. And it is this thing of revenge. And the thing that makes this section so difficult is what Jesus is saying is radical. I mean, if you just listen to what I read, he's saying, don't resist an evil person. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, anybody asks you down Beach Road or Oxford Street for something, give, give. If someone wants to take you to court and wants to take your house, give your car too. <laughs> These things are crazy. And so as I'm trying to unpack this, I'm just feeling, God, I don't want to dilute the radical nature of what Jesus is saying. But man, he is saying some big stuff here. And he starts off with good advice. He says, you know, you've heard in the law that it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's very good advice. That law was given by Moses so that it con could control revenge. In other words, if I smash Ali's car, she can't take me to court and take my house. She can only get the value of what I did damage to her. She can only claim back from me. So it limited revenge, and it limited the aspect of this kind of culture, which, like I said last week, if you remember those Westerns, these sort of blood feuds where one shoots one guy, then his, his friends shoot two other guys. And so there's this kind of escalating aspect of hatred. And the thing that's important here is to remember that this law is meant to be administered by judges. And so when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he's talking to a plurality of guys. He's saying to a group, a nation, that this law applies and it's really good. Our law courts should apply this. It limits this aspect of revenge in society. It's good. Ah, but he says, if you take this law into your own hands, he switches, he goes, you, singular, must not resist an evil person. In other words, if you apply this law on one-on-one -on -one relationships, you're going to find yourself in trouble. Not so. Let me tell you, a healthy marriage does not operate on the lines of going, you hurt me, well, then I'll hurt you. 
You reject me, well, I'll reject you. Is that a good basis of friendship? No, let me tell you, you will not get a promotion from your boss. If that's the way you act, nobody's going to like you, all right? It's the spirit that's inside of us, and it's inside you and me. That's vindictive. It's revengeful. And Jesus is saying, guys, remember, every one of these giants is showing you how we have to go way beyond in the way the world operates. That's not our standard. Not even the law is our standard. The standard for us is Jesus. And was there ever anybody who turned the other cheek, who went the extra mile, who was willing to give his cloak as well as his tunic, who was willing to even give all that he had, his own body and blood. No, my friend, Christ is the standard for you and me. And what is standard? Not so. He's saying this sort of pettiness where I hit you and I hit you back like my little toddler. No, no, that's not how we behave. As Christians, we are supposed to go much higher. And man, what a call this is. And the reason why we said last week, this is such a tough giant is because This need to strike back, this vengeful, revengeful spirit in you and me, it is a self-defense mechanism, not so? And it is defending the thing that is our biggest giant. Let me tell you, your ugly boss at work is not your biggest giant in your life. That mom or dad that's causing you such hectic, even mother-in-law, causing you such difficulty in your life, it's not, I have a wonderful mother-in-law in case you listen to the sermon, she's fantastic. That's not the biggest problem in your life. The biggest problem is this is we are defensive, we, get, we strike back because we are defensive around one thing. Oh, my friend, and you and I are born with it, it's called an ego, not so? Oh, man. And this self-defensiveness, this retaliatory spirit that strikes back when we hurt, oh, it's because we're preoccupied with someone's rights, with someone's reputation, with someone's stuff, with someone's time. It's called the ego, mine, this entitlement, to my rights and my possessions and my time and my reputation. That is the, that's our biggest problem. And I said last week, and I hope you paid attention, it's so helpful, it's understanding. Do you want to know what sin really is? Maybe you're here for the first time and you're trying to grapple with what this whole thing of sin is. Sin essentially is being preoccupied with self. Is we put the ego first in everything. And Jesus says, oh, these four scenarios, they are so helpful because when these things happen in our lives, when these four areas of when our reputation is attacked, which is being struck on the cheek. I'll explain it in a moment. Or when our rights have been violated, when we feel wronged. In other words, when someone takes you to court and sues you unfairly. Or when someone interrupts our precious time. Isn't it how we are? When someone forces you to go one mile, this unreasonable per- person. Does, don't they know I'm busy? Don't they know I've got things to do? Oh, dear me. The, it is all attached to our egos. Or when someone asks us to part with our money and we get nothing out of it, all of these moments, they are signs to show us what we are really like inside and how preoccupied we really are with ourselves. And that's not God being against us. My friend, it's God being for you. He's helping you enter into the kingdom. And you've got to know there's one thing that's blocking the kingdom in your life and mine. It is a preoccupation with self. Not so. How can we love people like Jesus loved them if we can only think about ourselves and how they are orientated towards us? No, 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 my friend. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, seek first what? Ourselves or seek first the kingdom? He said, seek first the kingdom. In other words, your life is to be preoccupied with Jesus. And what you will find is far from losing out, you will find that God's blessing in your life will be poured out. So that it says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. Why can Jesus give them to you? Because you're aligned correctly in your life. They are not feeding your ego. No, you've died to that. They're being steered towards the kingdom. Are you with me? 
So, Jesus is wanting to lead us into the abandoned life. And I said last week, part of our problem is this preoccupation with self. Oh dear, instead of being something that advances joy and happiness, it's a heavy yoke. We're so preoccupied with what people think about us. That's our reputation. We're so preoccupied with whether we are having a fair deal. Not so. We're so preoccupied with whether or not we have enough time for ourselves. Or maybe this, we're so preoccupied with how much stuff we can accumulate and how much people are trying to put their hand on it. It is all attached to this revelation of Jesus showing us what we are really like and him wanting us to be delivered from it. And can I say to you this morning, as we plunge into these four scenarios, each of them has a response. It's very important. As you'll notice, something comes into our lives and it comes to somebody who it does not have a nice heart towards you. They called an evil person. In other words, they're not thinking by the Holy Spirit or going, oh, what's best for you? No, they're, they're coming into your life and saying, with the exact same problem we have, what's best for me? Is do you notice that Jesus gives a response for each? When we get slapped on the cheek, he says, ah, oh, what will your response be? Will it be turning the other cheek? When somebody sues you for your tunic, will you give them your cloak as well? That's a response. When somebody asks, forces you, there's that word, forces you to go one mile, will you go two? Or how about this, when somebody asks, begs, that's the word. In other words, you're not selling you anything, you're not getting anything out of the deal. When somebody asks something from you, oh, will you give to whoever asks? There is a response to every single one of these scenarios. And my friend, can I say to you today, they are going to come into your life. If you have been around long enough, you will know what it's like to have somebody come and almost invade these areas of your life. Not so? And can I say to you, based on our response to these trials, it will determine whether or not we grow. Because these trials and testings, they're not just testings of grace. In other words, how far God's work is going in our lives. They are testings in order for training and how we choose to respond. Oh man, there will be our finest hour or we'll miss it this round, it will come back again. And Jesus is saying, church, if you're going to follow me, you have to decide how you're going to respond. And based on your response to these trials, oh, wow, God's going to move you forward in the kingdom. And so he's saying, I'm just cautioning you. When these trials come, don't get vindictive. Don't get revengeful. Don't try and preserve self. No, no, these moments are Christ building his kingdom into our very hearts for freedom. But I want to start by pointing out there's a condition to these trials. And the first is this, is that Jesus is assuming you're not in the midst of trial because of evil that you've done. And I just point that out this morning. He's talking about somebody coming into your life that's hurt you, not that you've hurt them. And as I was unpacking this, the thing that came to mind first and foremost, it's in my life and in yours, is the first thing we are quick to do is to point the finger. Not so. That person hurt me. That person did this. That person has come in. But I want to ask the first thing that Jesus is saying is he's saying, actually, he's assuming that it's evil that's come into our lives, not evil that we have inflicted on others. Are you with me? Can I just caution you this morning as you frame these four scenarios in your life? is to ask the question, these areas of conflict 
and difficulty in my one-on-one relationships. That's what Jesus is talking about. Do I have anything to do with them? That's what Jesus is saying. In other words, have these previous giants been operating? Have I gotten angry in an unrighteous way? Have I lashed out at somebody and caused hurt? My friend, if that's you, don't respond and going, oh, well, it's that person's fault. You need to go make right. That's reconciliation. Maybe it's lust. Maybe you on the rocks in your marriage because you've been dilly-dallying with somebody else in your marriage. And now your, your spouse is taking you to court and always being so nasty. Or maybe you've neglected your marriage. My friend, that is a side effect of us neglecting the one that God has bound us to. We must fix that. It's not a cause of them just being nasty to us. No, no. We have to realize that there are consequences to our sin. Or maybe it's because we haven't kept our word. Can I say, so many relationships struggle because there's no trust. Not so? Can I say one of the things I have to own up in my marriage is being quick to say, I'll do it, and then I don't. And I've had to learn it's hurtful for Marina because she's saying, I'm taking you at your word. Now, it's not her fault when she's upset with me. I've got to make that right. I've got to put things right with her. Not so? So guys, please, when you are talking about hurt in your life, Always start with yourself. Always think carefully. Have I said something? Have I done something? Is there a record here where I need to make right? Oh, because what Jesus is talking about is the moment you are flummoxed. When suddenly a person comes charging in and it's signed loud. You're going, what the heck? I haven't done anything wrong to this person. And look how they're treating me. Oh, man. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, do not resist the evil one. And so, this is suffering for righteousness. You with me on that? It's not suffering for unrighteousness. And so the first scenario is this. It's when we get slapped on the cheek. Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this is a very odd scripture. Basically, Jesus is saying, when somebody gives you the backhand, Turn the other cheek. I'll explain it to you like this. It was a Middle Eastern form of offense, of insult. Now, most people are right-handed, right? And if I smack, smack uh, Retief on the, on the right cheek where it says, I'm doing this. And what do you do when you smack like this? You're not trying to kill Retief. You're not trying to do b- grievous bodily harm. It's an insult. And, and if you've seen it on the movies, they do it like this. I'll use nice words, but you promiscuous woman. No, not you. I mean, I mean, like, uh, you know what I'm saying? Um, that's not the best one. You thief! You liar! Is you moving with your, your backhand because you're moving in with your mouth. Not so. It's a form of insult. If you smack someone with the backhand, oh, goodness me. You're not interested in trying to kill them. You're trying to attack their reputation. That's the point. And can I just point out, Jesus is not saying, if somebody is choking you, turn the other cheek. No, no, my friend, if someone's trying to kill you or break into your home, or ladies, there's some sleazy guy that won't take a hint, you pepper spray the heck out of them. I'm telling you, this is not about Jesus saying, oh, well, turn the other cheek when they're trying to attack you. No, no, he's saying, when somebody insults you, somebody insults you when they give you the backhand, that's the moment when you go. Can I tell you what Jesus says? It's the moment you do nothing. That's what Jesus is saying. Somebody comes at you in the office. Maybe it's a spouse. They're attacking you personally. It is 
a, 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 it is different to discussing about a scenario outside. It is when someone's gunning at your character, when somebody's misframing you, or maybe even misunderstanding you. It is going for your very person. You know what it's like when someone gets personal? There's a difference between talking about a problem or talking about you being the problem. Not so. And that's what Jesus is saying, is in this moment, we have to do nothing. This turning the other cheek means we don't respond in the same spirit. In actual fact, he's saying, don't even respond at all. Don't even get offensive or get bitter. You turn the other cheek. And now, if you're like me, welcome to my world. I'm saying that is impossible. Not so? Oh, let's, not, let's just be real here for a moment. Nobody is all sweet and angelic and kind on a Monday morning after church. And I want to say to you this morning, the reason why it feels like it is impossible, if that is you in your marriage or maybe with a friendship or some colleague at work and you're going, there is just no ways I can keep my mouth shut when they're going after my character. I want to just zoom out for a moment and challenge you what God challenged me on this week is the reason why you can turn the other cheek is you've answered the question in your life, in whose hands does my reputation really rest? You see, the reason why it's so helpful when someone attacks you and you think it's unfair, you cannot trace it back to anything that you could have possibly done intentionally, is it's the moment when God starts to tap you on your life and say, my boy or my girl, who do you think holds the reputation is it in your hands or is it in mine? One of the, the mightiest scriptures in the Bible is Psalm 62 verse 7. It's something that my, a friend of mine gave me a de- over a decade ago that I've meditated on it since then. It says, on God, on God rests my salvation and my glory. On God rests my salvation and my honor, that's, the, that's what the NIV says. In other words, God is saying, and he's as radical as this, the degree to which we are recognized in this life, acknowledged, acclaimed, honored, praised, applauded, the degree to which we receive glory in this life is determined only by God. Think about that for a moment. In other words, Psalm 62 verse 7 says, Our very reputations rest in the hand of God. I want to prove it to you in Scripture this morning. Is it not the example of the saints of old? Think about that guy called Joseph. Joseph had a dream, and his dream was that his father and his brothers were going to bow down to him. I tell you, that's a dream of glory, not so? Except Joseph had a little bit of a problem. He had a big mouth and a big ego. And it didn't help the fact that his dad gave him nice clothes, better wardrobe than the rest of his brothers, his beautiful coats. And what happens to Joseph? He has a bit of a loud mouth. And the first great insult in his life that happened was Joseph was thrown into a pit and then into slavery by his own brothers. Just think about that for a moment. His own family, his own flesh and blood want to kill him. Thanks to God's intervention, they don't. And he gets sold into slavery, into a household called, run by a guy called Potiphar, Potiphar's household. And he becomes the chief slave. And then he gets falsely accused again. He gets attacked by this evil woman, Mrs. Potiphar, who is just lusting after Joseph. And she tells a fib about him and gets him thrown into jail. 
And here Joseph's sitting, and he has an opportunity to try and clear his name. Anybody like that this morning, wanting to try and clear their name? And there's two officials of Pharaoh who have influence. That's what we try and do. We try and get people on our side who have influence, have a voice. And oh, goodness me, he tries to say, ah, he interprets their dreams and says, when you get back to Pharaoh, he says to the cupbearer, won't you remember me? Won't you get me out of this prison? That's what we do. And God looks down from heaven and goes, oh, my boy, we've got some more time in prison for you. And you know what happens? Suddenly, just think about, just think about this for a moment. You've got a prisoner who in one meeting with Pharaoh is promoted to prime minister. Who orchestrated that? God did. God in one moment looked at this guy and said, Joseph, you're ready, my boy. Do you know how God knew he was ready? Was that when Joseph had the power, he turned the other cheek. He didn't attack Potiphar and throw him into prison and say, your justice skills are pathetic. Mrs. Potiphar, I'm throwing you into prison. And when his brothers came to him, what did Joseph do? He turned the other cheek. Can I tell you, if you are wanting to move forward in the kingdom of God, God is going to address this thing in your life of how attached you are to your reputation. And one of the things we die to in terms of ego is this thing of, oh man, this ego, this, this reputation rests in my hands. What is the cause of somebody wanting to strike back? It's, we believe, this is the fundamental lie, we believe that our reputation rests in our own hands. And if we don't defend our honor, who else will? Do you know one of the joys of the kingdom life is? Is you've got nothing to prove. Because you know the one who gives you glory is not the person next to you. It's not your spouse. It's not your boss. It's not your income. It's not your finance. It's not your, your looks. None of that gives you any glory in this life. In actual fact, the only one that exalts or humbles a person, it's God himself. And what it does is when you start to live like this, where you can turn the other cheek, it leads to such freedom. Because what is the one side effect of a person who's insecure and he's always trying to jockey for glory? Is they're always trying to perform, not so. I've done it and you've done it. When you try that little bit too hard, because fundamentally you believe if you just impress the right person, they'll put you in the right place. Can I say to you this morning, the joy of what Jesus is talking about is dying to this need to defend oneself because you believe, well, I'm my only defense. If I don't get justice in this court, in this reality, in this earth, well, then I'm not going to get justice. No, no, no. God's saying, don't you know, your reputation's not in your hands. It's in mine. And let me tell you, when God says it is time, no man can close the door. Amen. There's David. What an insult. His own father won't even call him up for the lineup with Samuel. He goes, here's my great son, my great son, my great son. And David has to, I mean, Samuel has to ask his father, is there anybody else? Let me tell you, God will find you in a field. God will not let you be overlooked. And even now, maybe you've got some passion to do for him, but nothing's coming together. Maybe God's given you a promise. Let me tell you, do nothing. Do nothing to try and promote yourself. Do nothing to try and make it all glorious about yourself. You wait on God, my friend. He will orchestrate it for you. And let me tell you, one of the most joyful things in life is to live like Jesus. Don't you think it's fascinating that the Son of God, we know nothing about him for 40 years. Let me tell you, this boy looked different. He never sinned. He was the perfect, I want to show Sarah. I wish I could show Sarah. Sarah, look at Jesus, behave like that. He did this and this and this and this and this. You'll make my life a whole lot easier. Nobody knows anything about Jesus. Do you know why? Because the father said it wasn't time. 
But when it was time, Jesus arrives. He's filled with a power from the Holy Spirit. And suddenly, in just three years, he accomplishes the will of God. Let me tell you, God will keep you in the wilderness like Moses for 40 years. God will keep you running like David with this guy assaulting his character called Saul, saying he's a traitor, he's a traitor. And when your moment comes, oh, my friend, when you can strike him back on the cheek, your enemy, oh, you must turn the other cheek because if you do, God will say you're ready. You're ready. That's what happened with David. There was Saul in the cave, and he could have said, now's the time. Let's kill him. But he lets Saul go. And what does God do? He exalts David. Second scenario is being taken to court. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. What is Jesus talking about here? He's describing somebody who's come into your life who's ruthless. And he's taking you for all you've got, even the clothes on your back. He wants it. Maybe it's a business partner making outrageous lies in court. Or when enemies try to squeeze the last drop out of you. Remember, these are evil people. What Jesus is saying, by law, by law, you could stand on your rights and say, you can take everything except my cloak. But Jesus says, even your cloak you give away. In other words, even your rights that you feel so strongly about. What they're doing is wrong. What they're doing is wrong. You go, I lay it down for the sake of not being vindictive. In other words, I refuse to strike back with the same spirit and the same tools that they've done to hurt me. Anybody like that today? People are even leveraging legal tools against your reputation. And the danger is, is to go, oh, well, you're going to take me for what I've got. I'm going to take you for what you've got. And we build up all of our defense lawyers and our defense kind of rational. And God is saying, my friend, if you drag into the law court, that's fine. You follow due procedure. But don't do it in such a spirit when you're trying to attack the person who's doing the very same thing to you. You with me? Oh, man. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, is it might be the toughest trial of your life. Maybe somebody is going through a divorce. And your ex is taking you to the cleaners. Or maybe he's not giving you a cent. Maybe it's a, a foul business partner or somebody that schneid you. My friend, it might feel like it is impossible not to want to strike back with a vindictive spirit. But can I say to you today, again, like our reputation, you have to decide in your life who is the final judge. Because if you believe that this earthly judge... And this earthly law court is the only way you're going to be able to access to present your rights. You will defend yourself to the hilt because you believe, unless this judge clears my name, I'm done for. They're going to get away with it. They're going to get away with what they've done against me. If you believe that this law court, this kind of judge down the road, the law court is the final judge in your life, oh, my friend, you're going to be in trouble. You will never be able to let your rights go. And Jesus is saying, Lift up your eyes. Who's the final judge in the universe? It's God. And there is going to come a day, my friend, and if this is you right now, when you're wanting to get angry, you're wanting to even defend friends, you want to, you want to step in for justice, let me tell you now, there's going to come a time 
when God is going to put all things right. And let me tell you, when he clears your name after you've laid it down, and when he says, well done, good and faithful servant, it won't just be before the few that are sitting in the courtroom. It will be in front of the whole universe when God puts things right, clears your name, upholds your rights. Who would you rather have that done? Who would you, have that, who would you rather let do that in your life? Let God be the judge. Leave your case in his hands. And what you will find is you will find that you will find the peace and also you will find the justice. Even though it might be delayed, it's okay. It will come and you will not regret waiting for it. And may I also say the safety of not striking back in vindictiveness is that we don't understand the full context of everything. Not so. Are we so competent to judge? Are we so competent to know everybody's motives, everybody's background, everybody's context? Let me tell you, what we are doing when we're laying down our rights, it is the greatest, most difficult thing for the believer, but it is doing what God does for us. It is showing mercy. Amen? And can I say to you today, there will come a time when we will need the same mercy that we give. Don't you forget the Beatitudes. It says, blessed are the merciful for... They shall receive mercy. And when God calls us to lay down our rights, in other words, not to strike back with a vindictive spirit, not to escalate the conflict, not to be the one that was always throwing, throwing petrol on the fire, when we take up this call to even be willing to be wronged for the sake of the kingdom, God is watching. And what we will find is the mercy we show will pour it out on us at the right time. Third scenario, you're doing well. You're being forced to go the extra mile. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus is talking about this custom in the Middle East when a foreign power defeated an enemy, their soldiers could command the occupied nation, to carry their stuff. Let me explain it to you like this. There's maybe Ezra going off to the markets in, in Jerusalem. And suddenly this Roman soldier says, hey, buddy, pick up my pack. He's like, I've got an appointment. I've got something to do. I've got something to go. And the Roman soldier says, forget that, buddy. Pick up my pack and walk with me one mile. That's what he's saying. And Jesus is saying the attitude of when somebody invades our agenda and schedule is we go, okay, Lord, I lay down my time. I don't get vindictive and say, stuff you. Well, that wasn't the right thing to say. Well, something else, you go, get lost, buddy. No, no, he goes, we are very aware that when these interruptions come in, we feel, sorry, Ritif, just forgive me. Don't tell my dad. Okay, Jesus is saying, guys, let's move that 2,000 years forward. When an unreasonable person demands your time, now please tell me you know what this is like. When the government official demands your time, when the colleague who you can't stand demands your time, who maybe is a bit slower at catching things than you are, and you have to explain, or maybe... You'll find somebody demanding your attention 
when you don't feel the space to give it, Jesus is saying, be willing to be interrupted. Can I tell you, of the four, this is what God spoke to me the most on. It's I've realized as Westerners, the most egocentric way we live, the most self-important way we live, it's the way we use our time. Can I tell you, time is even more precious than our money. Don't touch my time. I'll even pay someone to do it. That's what we say. I'd rather get somebody else to do it than my precious time. And when somebody, oh man, wants to cut into our lives, when God says, I'm going to interrupt you a little bit, I'm going to force you to go one mile with this person, and you're going, ah, ah, man, you get vindictive and revengeful. Oh no, God's saying, no, my buddy, you're not so important. That's how we speak, not so, oh, I could just hear myself. You're wasting my time. I'm so busy. That's how we speak, not so. Oh, friends, the arrogance of us as Westerners is the way we choose to use our time. Don't touch my time. The arrogance of, oh, my sports and leisure, don't, don't, oh, my, my, my conference or my hobbies or whatever, my work, oh, Lord, help us. My work, we are so self-important. We've got careers to build. We've got houses to buy. We've got things to do, and our time helps us get there. Oh, when God starts to tap us on the shoulder and say, you need to slow down, buddy, because you're not as big as what you think. It's grace, my friends. It's grace. And what he's doing is this. He's saying, you will only lay it down if you believe your time belongs to God. Do you believe that? I don't think fundamentally we believe. We believe our time. Time belongs to me. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the crafter of my destiny. That is what postmodernism is saying, is I am God. Can I just point out to you, oh man, what God says in James. I'll read it to you. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What is James saying? Is there is a boasting in the way we use our time. We are so interested in doing our own thing, our own way, on our own schedule, without asking God, is this pleasing to you, Lord? Is this in your will for me? Are you in it? We, are feel, we feel so attached to our egos in the way that we demonstrate and use our time. It is so self-centered. We don't say what James says is, God, is what I'm doing pleasing to you? The way I'm using my time, are you in it? Am I seeking your kingdom in this most precious commodity that you have given me to steward? Can I tell you, I'll point out the greatest interruption that will happen in your life and mine is whilst we are busy going on, advancing our careers, trying to make ends meet, trying to do things and advance our egos, let me tell you, the greatest interruption that's going to come is the second coming of Jesus. Let me tell you, in that moment, there'll be the greatest interruption of your life and mine. And the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, what we are doing with our time, will it match up to examination then? When we understand that God has ordained the number of our days, and the psalmist says, let me learn to count them so that I may gain a heart of wisdom. Time is not an infinite proportion for you and me. It is given to us by God as steward. And one day, the greatest interruption of our lives, either by death or the second coming, is we're going to stand before God and give an account of how we used it.
And the most helpful thing is to go, your time and my time is not, we don't have, quid, quote, quote, we don't have our own sort of egocentric control over it. God is saying, are you asking me if I'm pleased with what we're doing, what you're doing? Oh, man. Because there's going to come a time, I won't go into it all, when the way we have modeled and shaped our days will be recognized by God himself. And these interruptions, they're God moments. Let me tell you, you've got somebody who's giving you a, a, a hard time. Embrace it, my friend. Slow down. Let the Lord interrupt you because he's preparing you to realize that these interruptions are his grace to release you from self-importance. The last is this. I'm going to be quick. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. One of the greatest areas of struggle is this fourth scenario of parting with our money and possessions. Oh, Lord, help us. Can I say to you this morning, like me, the same applies to you. John Wesley said, the last thing to be converted is a man's wallet. And he's right. And this is why bargains appeal to us. Not so. I love bargains. When those little pamphlets come through into the post box, I go, yes, I'm going to score. I look through it and I, go to, and I go to checkers and I go to pick and pay and I go to these spots and I buy things at great prices and I feel like I'm getting something from it. Not so. Ah, but Jesus is saying the context of where he's causing us to have radical generosity is when it's costing us. When somebody is begging and asking us for something, what God is saying is, when somebody's begging, he's not giving you anything in return. He's got nothing to give you. It's not some sort of work he's offering. It's not some sort of um, thing that you're buying. What you are doing in that moment is it's costing you to give. What he's saying is the default side of the Christian is to understand that we err on generosity. We err on radical giving. We err on sharing with what God has given us. It makes us a generous people. But the thing that stops us wanting to give is if we believe everything we have is our own. It's this entitlement where we go, I've worked for this. It's mine. You should do the same. It's when we start to think that these things are ours because of who we are. Let me tell you, you were born into a family that entitled you to the education you got that got you the work that you have. You were privileged, largely as white South Africans, may I just point out, by a system that enabled you to advance yourself politically, professionally, that enables you to enjoy the wealth. And may I just remind you today, one of the hardest things for us as Westerners with materialistic instincts is to think that everything we have belongs to us. Oh, when someone comes to you and he's almost forcing your hand to give my friend, it is God reminding you of what you are going to err on because don't forget everything you have has been given to you by God. It's not yours, it's His. And can I just point out, is something that He has shown, is when somebody's asking you to be generous, don't get vindictive, don't get angry, don't get resentful. Why? Because God has been generous to us. Amen. God has been so good to us at Sterling. Let me tell you, one of the helpful things is this advanced network where we see how many churches are struggling, no building, can't afford a pastor, but yet they're going for the gospel. And here we have this glorious goodness of God, a tent, a cafe, free coffee in silver cups. Where else do you go in, in the city where you get silver cups? 
But yeah, God has been good to us. Let me tell you, if you've got clothes on your back, a roof over your head, you might not have a full cupboard, but you've got something to eat tonight. Let me tell you, there are millions in this world that would die for your position. What can I say to you? God is not condoning professional begging. It says clearly in 1 Thessalonians, where it says, if a man is refusing to work, he must not eat. That's what Paul said to the church, this community of love. He said, don't give bread to anybody if they're not willing to work for it. In the church! Ah. But the heart of the Christian is understanding how much we have received from God. That is the gospel. That's saying God has not withheld his only son. How much more? This change in my pocket, this bread that I have, this home that I get to share. Man, the Christians were renowned for their love. They shared their homes, their lives, what they had. They gave it freely. They said, if you come in, oh, we'll give. There was this incredible freedom of being able to give because we've received so freely. Amen? His understanding what God has given to us. Let me tell you, it's not our own. We have a limited time to bless others with it. With wisdom, yes. Oh, but with joy. With generosity. Praise God. He's been good to us. So, in summary, is anybody going through a trial? There's somebody in your life who's causing you these hassles. It is not God being against you. Let me tell you, it is God being for you. Enjoy it. Not that we're sadistic. We don't enjoy the pain or the difficulty of it. We enjoy what God is doing through it. You're up for promotion in the kingdom. But the second is this. Let me tell you, if you're not in that place yet, it is coming. It's coming. And you just wait. And I want to, pre- I want to prime you. When it comes, don't be a moaner like Matt Johnson is so often. Don't be a grumbler. Be one that goes, I embrace. I consider it all joy because in this moment, God is inviting me to enter into the kingdom. Amen. God is inviting me to enjoy a life that is abundant, free from self, free from this awful kind of preoccupation of small-minded me. God's saying, come, give what you have. Give your time. Let go of your reputation. Give your, give your finances. No matter what it is, you give it to me because I've given you so much. You cannot outgive God. The more you pour out, you will discover the more he will give. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this morning, you are the wisest teacher in all the world. You know how scheming and squirming our hearts can be, but, Lord, I praise you. You know just how to deal with them by warming us to your grace, by showing us we have so much in Jesus. And the life that you're calling us to, it's not, a, it's not this morose, heavy, burdened life. No, no. You said my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. And so, God, I pray today that the encouragement of your purpose moving forward in our lives would be what motivates us to give ourselves wholeheartedly, sacrificially, joyfully to the core of abundant life. We bless you for this morning. We thank you for speaking. In Jesus' name, amen.